Hello and welcome to episode 53 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to figure out what it is that hooks people on this wonderfully infuriating game. Rod Murray's my name and alongside my colleague John Huggan, we get to talk to golfers from every imaginable corner of the game. Players, administrators, caddies, entrepreneurs and even, as we will on this episode, those who write about the game. In print media, there's a theme of constant change. The thinking goes that you need to keep refreshing the content to keep the reader coming back. But there are always exceptions that prove the rule, and today's guest is one of those. John Huggan joins me now for a quick teaser of his interview with a writer who's not only a long-time friend of Huggins, but one that I suspect many of us readers feel that we know too. Huggy, Guy Yoakum's My Shot column in Golf Digest might be one of the best regular features in print in any genre, not just golf. Yeah, absolutely. I'd have to agree with that. And uh, it's been much copied over the years. Uh, Guy was the first one, that, and certainly in my experience, to do it that way in golf. But um, no one, I don't think, has come close to doing it as well as he does. I mean, I've had a few goes at it myself, to be honest. And uh, I'm still uh, in awe of how much he drags out of people for these things because uh, he's, I think he did over 100 of them. <laughs> and uh, he, he got good at it pretty quickly. Was it his idea, Huggy? Do you know? I think he saw it. Um, I think he saw it somewhere else and thought that could be that could work in golf. And I think he went to our boss at the time, Jerry Tardy at Golf Digest in America, and uh, pitched it to him and and was said, well, he was told, go and give it a try. And uh, I think it just went from there. It's a real gift, as you and I both know, being in sort of similar jobs and interviewing people and writing stories and profiles. He's got a real gift, is he? And I've got a. a, a I've got one here that the insights he would drag out of people are quite amazing. I've got one here that just really struck me as sort of telling that whole story. For those not familiar with the format, the story is told in the interviewee's voice. It's a first-person piece. So Yoakum writes it and obviously asks the questions and gets the answers. But Sam Sneed, I think he might have even been the very first my shot. Mm. This, there's so much packed into this insight, it's extraordinary. Sneed says, I've still got the four-string Gibson banjo I ordered from a Sears catalogue when I was 14. It took me three years to save enough money to buy it. It may be the most precious thing I own. Nobody has played it but me. Now, that's a detail. Mm. If somebody told you they bought a banjo when they were 14, that would go in one ear and out the other. Completely mm. uninteresting. But doesn't that tell us so much about Sneed? And the genius of Yoakum to have spotted that and to have crafted it that way, and it now tells you so much about Sneed, doesn't it? Well, it does, and it tells you a lot, a lot about Guy as well. I mean, um, I mean... It, as you said at the start there, he's a close friend of mine, has been for over 30 years. We worked together for a long time. Um, he's an easy guy to talk to, guy I'm talking about. I mean, he, he's a great conversationalist. He's a great storyteller himself. I mean, I can sit, uh, you know, he and I would go out for a beer after after work and he'd sit for hours just listening to him. He's a great raconteur himself. And I think that's why he made people feel so comfortable. Um, they were at ease in his in his in his company, and it became you know the tape recorder was forgotten, and it became a conversation between two friends rather than an interview between a journalist and a subject. Is he a genius, Huggy? No, he's not. No, <laughs> I think he'll laugh when he hears that as well. No, <laughs> he's not going to he, listen uh, to this, so don't worry about that. <laughs> no, he's um, yeah, he's very very good at what he does. I mean, I was. I was a huge fan um, of his writing, very gifted, um, very good at coming at subjects from different angles, um, far far more inventive a writer than I'll ever be. Um, I, I admired that. I admired him greatly 
for that and still do. Um, unfortunately, he's retired now and we don't get to see him in print uh, very often, if at all. Um, but when he was there, he was one of the best. You note in the interview, Huggy, and I was quite surprised too, is just how many books Guy Yoakum has written or been mm. involved with. We don't think about that, do we? I always think of Yoakum, my shot, that's it. That's the way the connection ends for me. So much more to the man. Yeah, I mean, he was he's very close. He got, because of all the things I just said, he, he, he got very close to some of the subjects. I mean, he and Phil Mickelson were big buddies. Um, Johnny Miller was another one of his pals. Um, he did all Johnny Miller's stuff for the magazine. Um, I think they did at least one book together, maybe two, I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, Guy's very versatile. He did a lot of instruction books, you know, biographies, autobiographies. He's all over the map. Um, great, vers- great versatility as well as uh, great talent there. Yeah, indeed. Well, it's a fabulous chat that you have with him. I can't leave today, hug you without passing on my condolences personally to you. Renton Laidlaw was on this very program just a few mm. weeks ago. And of course, not long after you did the interview, Renton passed. So, and I know you were good friends with him, but in some ways, wonderful to have that legacy of that that last chance to sit down and have that great cap- chat and capture it for the rest of us to hear. So congratulations on that and condolences on the loss. So. Yeah, thank you. It's um, I'll miss him. Um, he and I were regular. Um, we had lunch together on a regular basis. Um, it's hard to believe that he's not going to be there anymore. Uh, I'll miss the, the chats, that's for sure. And of all the wonderful eulogies written about Renton, I think the fact that he could endure you at lunch on a regular basis for multiple years in a row is testimony to what an extraordinary person that he was. He, he was he was a man of many talents, and that might have been the best one of them all. <laughs> Certainly the most unique. Huggy, it's been fabulous. We'll get on to listen to Guy Yoakum. Thanks for joining us, and we'll chat, catch up with you uh, soon. My pleasure. My guest this time round is, uh, again, one of my favourite people and one of my oldest friends in golf journalism, Guy Yoakum, like myself, formerly of Golf Digest. Um, so let, let's get right to it. Guy Yoakum, what's the thing about golf for you? Good uh, good afternoon, John. I, you, you know, you, you uh, stuck me that question in advance. It's the only one that you stuck me in advance. And uh, I, I thought about it a little, and I, I think, gee, that's, that's kind of a, a, a hard question, uh, a broad question. I, I thought of coming back with something trite, you know, like it's uh, the thing about golf is chip shots hold and brassies cut squarely on the meat. But uh, then I thought about it. And, and the thing that really about golf uh, for me is how pervasive it, it has been and still is um, on my life. You know, I, I think if you have the heart of a golfer, if you're if you're a real golfer, a true golfer, and somebody really loves it and then the game speaks to you and it's something you've you've done your whole life i think it it really creeps into every aspect of, of who you are um you think about you know you have if you're a golfer chances are your friends play golf and you know to that point you know it ends up it ends up uh determining like in, in shaping all of your social life you know mm-hmm. that you know when you're out with friends you, you always end up talking about golf uh Geez, I mean, hopefully not bragging about what you shot or anything, but that you talk about, talk about courses and um, golf. It's, all, it's your main source of recreation, you know, uh, exercise, walk, walking. Um, you're out there. I mean, there's there's not a lot of golfers who have. I don't know too many golfers who also boat and ski. A few do, but mm. but. 
uh, golf is is like the, the it's there's an obsessive appeal to it, you know, where it's their kind of their main sport, you know, they're it's the primary thing they do. Yeah, and, we're, we're, and we're not the most rounded them. human beings, are we? Generally speaking. Yeah, that, that, that's true. Sometimes I, I regret that, but you know, I, I retired from Golf Digest last November. And, you know, I was thinking, gee, now now I have time and whatnot to do all these other things. And, and I look around and I, I see these uh, people down at the, the beach in their, in their little boats. And, and you know, I see people fishing and sort of the, these other pursuits. And I always look at these like, man, I'm going to try that someday. I'm too busy now. Well, now I look at them and I think, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I, and, uh, I, I cannot so see you guys sitting in a boat with a fishing rod. I'm sorry. Really? With a Henry Fonda like uh, bucket hat like you know, on Golden Pond? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Taking a six-pack of beer every day? No, nah, I don't think so. But, but golf, you know, it's, it, it, it is pervasive. And people who... who play golf their whole lives, you know, invariably they, they have firm handshakes, you know, it, uh, their hands are strong. They say like a sign of feebleness in old age. And, and we all know this, you know, you'll, you'll shake an, an old person's hand sometimes and they have kind of this papery weak handshake, but the golfers, even, even older guys into their eighties, you know, I, I think of Jackie Burke, for example, you know, um, whenever I see him and he's in his nineties, he like really squeezes your hand, and, and there's a there's a glint in their eye and a, a keenness uh, 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 to the way they look at you. There's an alertness, you know, and, and alacrity that golf kind of gives people. I think, you know. So, and then and then beyond that, you think, well, why is it so pervasive? You know, why why would we be um, so obsessed, so enthralled by by this game? And then it comes back to the actual game itself uh, and the way that it calls to us, you know, the sounds and, and the feels of it, the aesthetics of it, the, 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 the feel of a good shot. Um, it's so elemental. And, and, and again, it, it appeals to all these human needs, you know, and these really rewarding things. You know, it's a chance to, to compete, you know, if you're, if you're playing for a little monthly medal, uh, little tin cups or little things like that, um, that really it gives you purpose and excitement. And there's a barometer there, by the way. You know, you can measure uh, a way to measure how good you are. And I think that the, the people are really like that inherently. They, they like that. Uh, you know, who's the old timer who said it's the constant and undying hope uh, for improvement that makes golf so exquisitely worth the playing, something like that. Uh, I won't, I won't, I won't drag out too many of those old quotes, but um, there is that that aspect to it, you know. And it's, and I, you know, and also golfers, as as a rule, uh, generally, um, they're they're knowledgeable people. They're smart people. Intelligent. I found I, I, there'd never be any real evidence for something like that. Well, but, I, uh, I can think of a few exceptions, but I think you're generally right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some of, some of God's greatest moron edits play golf, but, <laughs> but, 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 but on the other hand, you know, you go out to a club, say, or, or it doesn't have to be a club, just, just any club. You'll see people there such a diverse group of people who do so many, who come from so many uh, different professions and things like that. 
And golf has a lot of downtime, you know, between shots, sitting in the grill room after that type of thing. And, and it's, it's a great way to find exposure to these people. You kind of learn so many little ancillary uh, things about golf, a, a lot more than you will uh, sometimes sitting, sucking down martinis at the, at the end of a neighborhood bar. It's, it's good. You know, it's uh, so, so, so here I am, um, you know, late in life, I still love, love the game. And I, I just think again, how pervasive it is and, and how the thing about golf is it should really be things about golf, plural, uh, because it, it just, it has this overarching uh, sort of thing that's really um, made me who I am. Yeah, well, I, th- I think um, it's such a great question because the answers are different for everybody, probably. You know, there'll, there'll be some, you know, common factors, but everybody gets something different from it, I think. Yeah. You know, one thing, too, is, you know, it takes so much time to play golf. Uh, but, you know, my wife, uh, Marcy, it's funny, she doesn't play golf. But, you know, she's always, she's never resented me playing golf. Now, keep in mind, you know, I'm not someone who plays, never has been somebody who plays, you know, 90, 100 rounds a year. It's not that much. I don't have time for it. But, but I, I did play a lot on weekends, you know, even when, mm-hmm. when my children were little. And But she never, she was always really good about it. She, she liked it. Um, liked me playing golf, you know, it, uh, I think there's that aspect too. The thing about golf is it, it kind of, it keeps you off the streets. You know, she knew, she knew where I was and she <laughs> saw that it made me happy. Yeah. You know, she, she, yeah, it made her, she saw that it made me smile. And, uh, you know, uh, she also, uh, over the years, she, she loved hearing me tell the stories of who I, who I played with and what was going on. And, uh, you know, when I played really badly or, and it was something that sort of meant something to me, a tournament or something, you know, she, she would pat me on the head and, and be, be a little extra nice to me if things didn't go well. But so, so there's that too. I, I guess that's going to a stretch. That, uh, it's a stretch to say that golf strengthens marriages, <laughs> but, uh, but, she liked it for some reason. So, yeah. so there's that too. That's a, another little thing about golf. So, yeah, well, that, that's, the, that's the, the longest and the deepest answer I think we've had to that question, guys. So I congratulate you for that. Well, I've tried hard on it, John. I, there's <laughs> probably a lot of BS in there. But, no, no, I think uh, it's all down to your research. I think it's. Uh huh. listen i've done uh, you know as well as i know you and i've known you for such a long time but um i did i googled you and i discovered yeah you've written more books than i than i realized you've you've written more books than most people have read i think um with various you know luminaries in the game johnny miller um jackie burke you mentioned Corey pavin phil mickelson david graham tiger woods um what have been your your favorite moments doing them? I mean, I know it's, I mean I've done them myself, and it's hard work, but uh, you obviously you've got an insight into some of these great people of the game. I mean, what have you learned down the way uh, doing these books with these? I mean, Johnny Miller, for example. I mean, I'm interested to hear what your take is on him. Yeah, well, the the Johnny Miller book, uh, which which I ghosted for Johnny. Um, um, that came about, it was sort of uh, like 40% of it was, it was an anthology of things that I, 
had done with with John for uh, for Golf Digest. I was his Boswell there for yeah. many years. He had a long relationship with Golf Digest, and yeah. he was. I, I just loved going going to to see Johnny Miller. Good gosh, you know he he, he did a, such a wide range range of things for us. He he did a lot of instruction, and to hear his instruction thoughts were always awesome. You know, they were really profound. It mm. was. They would go off the beaten path of, of normal, ordinary kind of instruction pablum, you know, that you would hear. There were always these insights that came out of his deep love for the game. And uh, he's one of those, he's one of those guys that you think is Johnny Miller, he gave you a president. He was just so gifted, you know, when he was at the peak of his game, that he was it was just raw talent. But uh, it was always clear how much thought he had put into it and uh, how, how deep his knowledge was and how many experiences he had. So when I went to, uh, we decided to, to write this book together, it was, it was really a blast, really rewarding. And I, I saw Johnny in a lot of different locales. You know, I'd see him out in Napa, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Salt Lake City. I would see him at tour events all over the place. And uh, uh, we're able to take our time a little bit to put that, book together but but it's a good book I, I i recommend it to people not to brag but but then the, the, I, I think the book that touched me the most the one that, that still means a lot to me now is the one that i did with jackie burke mm. you know it's called it's only a game uh it's, it's similar to harvey Phoenix's little red book it's uh it's uh, there's little parses in it that you can read. It's uh, yeah. Bud Shrake described Harvey Penick. I called the great Bud Shrake before I did this. I and asked for his uh, counsel on it. I go, what do you think a book like this should be? And 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 he told me that what made the Little Red Book so good was that it was like eating peanuts. He yeah. said, you know, you, you can open it up to any page and find little stories, little anecdotes. And he said, what happens is. It's like eat. It's like eating peanuts. You 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 eat a few, and and then you keep reading. You want a few more peanuts, and next thing you know, the bowl of peanuts is gone. And I guess that's why there were like five little red books. You know, they branched out into the blue one, the green one, yeah. I don't know, the purple one. They ran out of colors, and they couldn't do anymore. But uh, yeah, that's why maybe Jackie Burke book, and and that was a book also. It's sort of like, you know, the thing about golf, that's that's kind of what that whole book was about. And it had all kinds of things in it that were really, uh, some of them were not about golf. You know, he, it was just things he had learned in his life. And, you know, for example, uh, he, he said, he said, he gave me this advice one time, really wasn't meant for the book. But he, he told me this stuff. I'm going to put it in the book. Yeah. And he said, live your life so that when you die, you fill up the church. And I close that. And he, he said, he goes, well, just think about it. You know, he goes, if you have a big funeral, that there's a good a lot of people out in those church pews or wherever. Uh, that means that you were loved or at least respected a lot. He, he and then, Jackie said, you know, those guys, we were down in Houston doing this book just north of Houston is Huntsville, Texas, where the prison is, where they execute a lot of people. (laughs) And he said, you know, those guys, those guys up in Huntsville, he goes, they aren't getting much of a turnout. 
<laughs> he said, in fact, they're going to have to rent the pallbearers. <laughs> so he goes, don't, don't be like the guys at Huntsville. Huntsville, you know, live your life so that when you die, you fill up the church. So uh, he had a lot of lo- lo- little things like that. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Probably I actually- enough for I went to see him once um, at Champions, just uh, just outside Houston, um, when I was there for the Houston Open, to do a piece, a Ryder Cup piece, because he was the Ryder Cup captain at Muirfield in 1973 um, for the Americans, and he was really funny talking about the Ryder Cup. I mean, he just dismissed all the the scientific, um, you know, analysis that goes into everything these days. It was all very simple for for Jackie. It was all homespun stuff. I mean. You know, common sense. He he didn't put two guys together who didn't like each other, and you know all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was all pretty basic. But and he just shook his head at all the assistants that they have these days. I mean, it was all very much old school, but which is what you'd expect from a, a man who's almost a hundred years old, for goodness' sake. Yeah, that, you know, one thing he told me about Ryder Cup is he was looking back at the uh, the Ryder Cup that was held at Champions mm-hmm. and. Gee, John, you you know this off the top. I can't remember. Was it sixty nine or sixty seven? I think. Yeah, maybe sixty seven. That's right. It's, that's along with Ben Hogan was captain. Yeah, but he 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 said in that one, he he said he goes, you know, guy, read all this stuff about how Billy Casper, the great Billy Casper, never choked. That he he just had the pulse. And, of the snake, it just never went up. He was utterly unflappable, and it was really key to that grace, great his greatness. He said, "Well, the Ryder Cup was a different animal. It, it, he goes, people, it transformed people. It just clearly the stakes were so dear, were just so high at that that he goes, it, it would make, it would shake uh, the most placid individual. It would just take them into red line." kind of nervousness, almost where they almost have breakdowns. And he said, you know, at, at the opening, the, the first match, he said, here came the, the University of Texas marching band. They, they, they played the Star Spangled Banner yeah. and hoisted the colors uh, to their peak. And uh, he said, the first, first off in that match was Billy, that day was Billy Casper. And I, I can't remember who his partner was. Uh, but they go to play, and, and they have done all of this strategizing. Uh, I think it was all in a shot. It was foursomes. So it was yeah. like, okay, I'm going to hit. But the first tee shot, it called for Billy Casper to hit first. And Casper, they finished that Star Spangled Banner. Jackie looked over at Casper, and he said Casper's eyes were like teacups. They were big and wide, and he was <laughs> literally trembling. Yeah. And Jackie motioned, like, like, come on, Billy, get, get on, hit, hit, hit your tee shot. And Billy ambled over to him and said, I, I can't hit it. I can't, I, can't, I can't take the club back. Please have somebody, like, get me out of here. Have somebody else, have my partner hit first. And Jackie said he put his hand on, uh, on Billy's shoulder and said, now, Billy, here's what you're going to do. Just go up there. You know, close your eye, take a deep breath, and hit that old squiggly ass little fade of yours. Bump <laughs> it out there about two hundred yards, and yeah. let's get on it. Get yeah. get on with it. You can do this. <laughs> and so the uh, Casper managed to get up and, uh, and hit it like that. But that's for sure. It's the Ryder Cup. I had never heard Billy Casper <laughs> ever described like that. He just had yeah 
nerves what, are still, but the Ryder Cup would do that to you. Yeah, what, what's your theory on that? I mean, I've you know, you and I have watched a million Ryder Cups, and and you've seen as well as I have. I mean, you know, guys that just you know hardened players, you know, have won majors and won tournaments, and they've been you know resilient down the stretch under pressure, and and they just. <laughs> fold like cheap suits. I mean, I mean, my mind always goes to Jay Haas at uh, Oak Hill in 1995. I mean, the man could barely stand up at the end, never mind hit a golf shop. I mean, Barely stand up. Well, there's Johnny Miller for you. He said, you know, uh, right at the end of that, uh, towards the tail end of that Ryder Cup, and it was either uh, the one at Oak Hill or the one at Brookline, uh, 88 and 90, I believe. I can't remember. But, uh, he said Haas got on the last hole. And, and it, it, this was important. And Haas hit a pop-up. Yeah, that's it. No, that was Oak Hill 95, yeah. Oak Hill, okay, okay. Mm. So he, he pops it up, and Johnny Miller said, I've never seen a shot so poor of a shot in competition. He said, you know, when you hit a pop-up, it's almost the physics of golf. But when you hit a pop-up, it will go to the right. It will pop up slightly to the right of the line. Mm-hmm. He said, Jay Haas hit a pop-up that went dead left. He yeah. goes, he said it was like a trick shot. <laughs> he said, that, that, that is really hard to do. And yeah. he said, it just something happened to his nervous system that may be impossible, possible. But, but that's your right. Something that's like a demon gets in their bodies. It's just too big. Hell, Hell Irwin, uh, who, who's another really steely guy, just, just didn't seem to choke under under any circumstances, he was rendered almost useless, you know, yeah. in, in that ladder cut in 91 at Kiowa. He yeah. just almost couldn't play at all. And I mean, if I'd been Bernard Langer, I would have made Erwin putt that 18-inch or whatever it was that he had for the five. I mean, <laughs> given... A hundred percent. I thought about that. I thought about it at the time, and I still think about it today. And... Uh, you know, uh, he just he, and Hell Irwin will talk about that. He's quite open about. It. He said he couldn't feel his body. He, yeah. he, <laughs> you can get there's a level of choking where you become you feel almost invisible. Uh, your adrenaline is just completely overwhelms you. It's uh, and that was out. That was the Ryder Cup and, and Bernard Lager. I think was feeling some of that too. I, I yeah, absolutely. About yeah, it. I mean, yeah. We remember Bernhard, what one instance there where he and his opponent, they had like they both had four foot pots. They weren't really short pots, they were like four feet, good four feet. And he looked over at his partner, and the pressure would just suffocate, or his opponent, excuse mm-hmm. me. And it may not have been, it wasn't that right. It's another one, but he looked over at his opponent and said, uh, Trade out, <laughs> which is usually the expression is good, good. Yeah. But he said, trade out. Like, let's not put these. Yeah. There's, there's no good can come of this. One of us is going to miss it and have the most humiliating moment of our lives. What do you say we just pick these up and go to the next hole? Yeah. And uh, so it does that for sure. It's great. Anyway, Guy, I'm interested in your experiences writing these books. I mean, um, who was the most enjoyable? It sounds like Miller and Burke were, were a good time. I mean, how about Mickelson and, and what about Woods? I mean, you did the, the How I Play Golf, that big thing with Tiger Woods on the cover. Um, what was that like as an experience? Well, uh, it wasn't great. Uh, first of all, uh, it, it, it just, you know, I'll tell you the, the inside dog to listeners for this, you know, 
when you do a book like that, and Golf Digest sort of underwrote that book, uh, meaning they took it's hard to get Tiger to do anything. And Tiger didn't want to go out and do an instruction book that would require two days of, of photography, working on Hardy. He was really busy. Tiger was Tiger at that time. Tiger mania. And his, uh, everybody wanted a piece of them. And he just didn't want to commit to that. So we, uh, Tiger was a playing editor for Golf Digest. And we had this uh, big library of, of uh Good photography. It was pretty fresh. It's only a year and a half. Some of it, the longest was a year and a half old. So it's still usable. And yeah. uh, so it was ready May. And Tiger could, uh, we just popped those uh, uh, pictures in there and retool some of the words that he had already done. And then just speak to Tiger uh, a little bit, uh, maybe over the telephone. I guess I recall most of it was over the phone. And to yeah. get his further thoughts of it and i don't get all credit for that i wrote up with pete mcdaniel who uh, uh who was on our staff at that time he and i uh wrote that book right but you know i never really felt that great about it. it's kind of it was it's a good book don't get me wrong it's kind of a nice you know, tidy instruction book but it was done in sort of uh sort of that kind of commercial way and i hated the financial arrangement of it you know it's like Guys like you and I, <clears throat> we like work our whole lives. We, we, we work our whole careers uh, to get to a point um, where your ship really comes in and, you know, where you can really make some money, money off something. But in that case, you know, because it was underwritten by Golf Digest, uh, they, uh, Tiger's people were really able to drive a hard bargain for that. And, yeah. Uh, so that book, it was insane uh, how well it sold. It, it, uh, the initial print run was over a million copies, which is off the charts for a, a golf instruction book. And it wasn't a cheap book at the time either. It was well bound. It was extensive. Yes, and, you know, you just run those numbers through your head. Uh, you know, what's a million times? Twenty nine ninety five. You're getting up there, yeah. and I thought, "Good Lord, that's right." And it went into a second printing. They, they thought it was insane to, to print a million copies to begin with. Well, they 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 went and did more of them. And poor forlorn Pete McDaniel and I, uh, we just commiserated for months because we got paid, but it was it was uh, it was peanuts really compared to that. So. Now that I'm retired, I can I can kind of uh, you know some sour grapes about that, but but you know no royalties, uh, no aspect of, of that, and uh, but it was good. I mean, how how can I how can you really complain about that? Because it does put you next to Tiger, and you are you can always say you, you wrote that book, and it wasn't a bad entree, you know, uh, when, when you talk to an agent, a publisher, and they say, what have you done before? I say, well, I wrote Tiger Woods book. And they say, oh, well, you must know what you're doing. So um, all in all, it was good. But uh, but I can't help but thinking of, uh, I, I look over at my old battered couch. You know, I need a new couch. And I think <laughs> if that Tiger Woods book would have done better, I, I'd have a better couch right now. Yeah. How about Mickelson? He's the other intrigue. I mean, I know Phil reasonably well, and maybe not as well as you do. You spent a lot more time around him. Um What's he like as a character? I mean, how how would you explain Phil Mickelson to people who don't know him? 
You know, Phil, in some ways, he, he, he's kind of simple and uncomplicated in, in some ways. I've known him since he was an incoming freshman at Arizona State. Yeah. Uh, I played golf with Phil. I was covering college golf at the time, going to a lot of college golf tournaments. And uh, I got to know the coaches, and I called Steve Lloyd, who later became Phil's manager. Uh, but he was coach at Arizona State at the time. And uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm just going out to Phoenix, Scottsdale, on another assignment. And I just say, hey, you, you know, you want to get together and have lunch? You want to play golf or something like that? He said, well, I can't. I'm busy. But, uh, but I got this kid I want you to. I'll have him come out and play golf with this kid. Uh, you know, he's an incoming freshman, and he's really freaking good. I want you to see him. And I, I said, okay, who is it? Well, it turned out to be Bill Mickelson. And Nicholson was a little well-known. He had had some AJGA success like that. But we went to Troon Country Club and played. And, man, uh, Phil was all – it was just as advertised. And uh, his game was unbelievable. If anything, I think as a putter, he used this this tiny little – I don't think he's 28 inches long. This mm-hmm. little blade putter, not a lot different than the one he's using right now. You see yeah. with that kind of that blade putter. Yeah. But this was, it's a designed by Arnold Palmer, uh, just the most simple blade putter and short. And Phil could putt with that thing. I, I think that the 18 uh, year old Phil Mickelson is as good a putter as I've ever seen. He just made everything, uh, sort of like, you know, speed is. Really good. Makes a lot of 20, 30 footers, long putts. Yeah. Well, that's how Phil was. And I don't know uh, why, why people do this, but he, he eventually had moved away from that putter and uh, he played ping golf clubs. Then. And, uh, uh, but as a character, uh, Phil Dunn was just sort of like the same way he is now. He's just, uh, he's, he's playful. He, he's a little, out there, he, he uh, has a lot of joy, uh, deeply curious about stuff. Mm. Uh, he has this, this chip where he's not easily embarrassed. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, he, does, he would just do the most ridiculous things and things that you think would stick and, and, and leave a scar on your psyche. And Phil, he just it can't be embarrassed, it, maybe for two seconds, but then it just puts it behind him and just moves on. Um, what's, an example, an what's an example of that? Well, you know, early on, he, he was doing stuff. I remember he played a Walker Cup back then, and uh, he, he was over in Ireland. Yeah. And he made a remark, you know, Phil never could drive it straight. And uh, he hit it over into the gallery. Uh on one hole and he uh they asked him about it later and he said yeah i don't want to do that again because that's where all the irish women are <laughs> <laughs> you know so like, suggesting that they weren't pretty <laughs> and man did they come down on him like a 10 pound shit hammer for that he just got fried for it and phil was momentarily embarrassed but then he, he just moved on you know and he, he's, he has certain kind of teflon thing uh yeah. All of these things that have happened to him, you know, the the gambling things and the um, hooking up with Billy Walters and these these yeah. stock market things, you know, they, they just don't seem to stick to Phil. And uh, in a way, you don't want him to, you know, because Phil just does this stuff 
I don't think that he's dark hearted really at all. I, I think they're just stuff that he's drawn to because he's curious and he wants to have fun and he likes to take a little bite of forbidden fruit here and there. Mm. And he's really kind of really human, you know, so. Uh, Guy, Guy if, so we give, if we give Tiger 10 out of 10, what, what does Phil get? What do you mean 10 out of 10 for what? Well, if we give Tiger 10 out of 10 as a golfer, what, where does Phil rank behind him? Uh, well, that's, that's interesting. You know, the, the sum of, of Phil would probably be uh, 8.5 out of 10, right? Because you look at how many tournaments he was. He's unquestionably a Hall of Fame player. Uh, he, he's got a half full of majors. I mean, he's, he's first ballot. Uh, he's, he's a Hall of Famer. He's yeah. great. He's, he's really an extraordinary player. Uh, probably one of the top dozen players to golf all time, at least. And uh, so that, that's got to put you on that 8-5 eight, five, eight, five area. But, you know, to be up there with Tiger, you know, where you're in that same conversation, he, he would have to be another notch or maybe two notches better than he is. I, I think here's the thing. Here's the thing with Phil to me. I, it's my theory, but I but I like my theory, and and that is his makeup as as a player. When see when he came out of college, um, not joking, he was going to be the next Nicholas. He yes. was that good. He, yes. he won these NCAA championships, the U.S. Amateur. He won them with ridiculous ease, and people were really thinking uh, that he might be the next Nicholas, and and they were always champion who's going to be the next next Nicholas. And Phil, he is a guy who was really um, supremely talented. It seemed like he, everything he did, it looked like he could do it with one hand behind his, tied behind his back. Um, and so he just kind of floated. And I think that Phil, deep down, I thought that these things would just happen, that he would win majors. They would just, it was just uh, the natural centrifugal force of life, inertia would, would bring these to him. And then Tiger showed up. Okay. Mm. And Phil and Tiger, there's, we have the impression that Phil's a lot older than Tiger, you know, that he's, that he's, you know, they're, they're only five years apart. Yeah. They're really kind of the same generation. It's a slightly different wave. Tiger was behind him. But, you know, they're, they're, they're roughly the same age. And when Tiger came around, it, this was a completely different thing. And Phil's approach, you know, which was kind of a Southern California, come what may, laid back, cool, low stress, uh, all that thing. Suddenly, that is not going to work. Uh, it's like it's going to make him do things that he doesn't want to do. Yeah. Uh, meaning like work harder, meaning he needs to get into shape. Uh now, man, he's going to need better equipment. He, he was, did, was not with a good equipment company coming out. All of these things, and I think that just hit it. He was just in shock uh, with that. You're right. I think you're right about that because I think that similarly with Ernie else. I mean, Ernie grew up being told that for a long time that he was going to be the next god in golf and feel the same. And I think it was a huge psychological blow for those two because they're definitely – two and three in the Tiger era, if you can call it that. They were the, the next two best players by a distance, probably. And it was a no huge, question. It was and a, you're huge right blow, about a huge blow to their egos, I think, for this guy to come along and be demonstrably better. 
I mean, it was hard for them to take, I would imagine. Very hard to take. And, I, uh, you know, Ernie, he, he's not the same personality type of Phil. They're, they're, they're different people. But Ernie did have that sort of laid back. He was friendly to everybody. He, he, he was so civil. He has a sweeter, softer interior. He's a thoughtful person. He's, he's not a mean person. Hmm. He, he's not a born killer. Uh, Ernie never gave the impression that he wanted to step on your throat. He, he wanted to win, but he never had kind of that personal edge. Tiger was really different from that. He is a born killer. Hmm. And I almost like he didn't like people. He didn't trust anybody. And uh, I think his father imbued him with, with, with a lot of that, that stuff. And like, you know, this is your destiny and you're not going to let anybody get in your way. You're not, it's, you know, you're not going to fall into the trap of being too many people's friends. You're not going to become a media darling and, and go through all that drama. In fact, I don't want you to care about that. Mm. And, uh, but see, I, I think a lot of that guy, I think a lot of that came from the mother, not, not Errol. I mean, I think Errol, you know, there was some of that, but I think the mother is the real killer in the Woods family from what I've heard. I mean, she's the one that uh, disciplined Tiger. I don't think Tiger was ever disciplined by his father. I mean, she's the real, hard, she's the hard nose in the family, I think. I mean, I, the little I've been around her, man, she's as hard as nails. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it could be. And, and uh, traditionally, you know, mothers can have much stronger impacts on children than yes. a father can, you know. And mothers can be the, geez, General Douglas MacArthur, MacArthur, he was a mama's boy. And that's true with a lot of hard ass dudes, you know, it was the mother that, that really shaped him. And that, and that may be true of Tita Woods, you know. Um, yeah. um, so anyway, that's the upshot on Phil. I just think that he was in shock by Tiger come along. He never really recovered. And uh, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't rewrite his DNA, really, and be, be someone he's not and become like Tiger Woods. Uh, I don't think that that's who Phil is. And all we know is, is, is that the Tigers thing. He was the boss, and uh, he made all of those. Every golfer in the world just made him his little bitch, you know, and uh, and came away with this record that he has, you know. Which uh, I don't know that anybody else will. They say, well, anybody catch Jack? I don't know if anybody will catch what Tiger has done. So, mm. yeah, interesting I mean, stuff. You, you touched on Johnny Miller earlier. I mean, everybody. I think. I mean, I'm certainly of this view, and I don't know. You can confirm or deny, but. Uh, that the Tiger's best golf is the best golf we've ever seen. But I think uh, a contender for that category is certainly, for a brief period in the early 70s, has to be Johnny Miller. I mean, he was incredible for about a three- or four-year period in there. I mean, he was hitting pins with four irons three times a day and all that kind of nonsense. So his his best golf was certainly up there somewhere close to Tiger's best. You. Well, yeah, 1974, I, I think, was Miller's real peak. You know, he won eight times, and he was the first guy putting up these crazy Baroque numbers, you know, 61s and 60, 62s that, again, he did with ridiculous ease. And uh, it was never like a really great putter. He just uh, – other players of Miller's era, um, to this day, it's always fun when I was working with Miller when I would do – uh, other pieces with other players. And I, I'd love to ask them about Johnny Miller. Mm-hmm. And their eyes always got wide. Uh, just rapturous talking about Miller. Uh, 
Tom Weisskopf, for example, he says, I've never seen a guy like him. Uh, he goes, he just would hit it so close continuously. He would yeah. get on a straight and go into this zone where he just would do things with old equipment, mind you, which just wasn't as predictable. But Johnny just had a feel for, 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 for the game and for distances. It's no lie that he would want to know distances uh, within a half yard. Yeah. Uh, he would ask. I mean, maybe maybe that's kind of nonsense that he actually did it, but he thought he could do it. You know, uh, that that's for sure. And uh, yeah, that 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 little wave, that little wave in there, uh, Miller was great. I wish I could have seen it. I I saw John hit balls a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. He would do it for these construction pieces. And this, by the way, you know, Miller won the AT and T in nineteen ninety four. I know. I <laughs> was know? I was actually going to ask you about that. Did you ever talk to him about that? Because that you know, obviously, he's way past his best at that point. But and he couldn't putt. At all at that point, and yet he managed he had a, to win. How did he manage that? He had a raging case of the yips. Yeah. But I'll tell you why. Uh, Miller could still hit it, and uh, I would say one of these instructor pieces, he would just be phenomenal. I mean, you know, John, we, we watch these guys; they hit a lot of balls, and mm. a lot of times uh, they get into it. You know, they're taking. They're hitting these shots for the camera, but then you see kind of uh, something gets in their system and they just want to hit balls and uh, they want to practice. And Miller would do that. It's just a joy to watch the the trajectory, the the sound of that ball coming off the club face. They're everything. They're waggle. And, you know, Miller was a big guy. Mm. He's a big dude. He's like 6'3", big, thick wrists, huge hands, you know, and uh uh, he, he he just had the power. It was effortless. The club stayed so low to the ground, uh, you know, through impact. And his ball, he hit this. It was a penetrating flight, but it had kind of a a fluttery quality. It would peek out and then just kind of just drop straight down. It land so soft. He didn't didn't spin the ball too much. He just had this way of making it land and stop. He didn't didn't sizzle backwards. You know, uh, one time we went out to do a, a, a shoot with him. And he had a, there was no driver. He, Johnny was the Callaway for a lot of years. Yeah. And uh, there was no Callaway driver. I can't remember why. We'd done it on short notice or thing. We were out of Makita, I believe, in California. And so Johnny, he goes, well, I can't do this. And I'm hitting Callaway clubs. And I said, well, John, I'll bet you Callaway's really popular golf club. I'll bet you some dude in the, in the shop uh, or, or some member has Callaway clubs so in their backs so that guy went in there and he came out and he had a ladies driver it was a, a woman's driver and uh john looked and he, and he said i'm sorry this is all we have in there and john took this and he hefted it and he kind of waggled it in the air and the thing just was like spaghetti it just wow 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 just went waved back and forth like a noodle like the chef was made of rubber yeah and just kind of laughed and said, well it's the newest model i mean they'll like that okay let's let's do this so we hit the first shot and i mean it went 80 90 yards right yeah and you know with the chef just and john just kind of giggled at it then he hit the segment and went like 90 yards left. He overcorrected it. Mm-hmm. And he said, I've got it now. And then he just proceeded to like time this shaft, uh, to time the behavior of this thing. And he hit 30 in a row, like just dead, dead straight. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, yeah. Every time I hear about guys, uh, you know, they broke their driver and now they got to go to a backup driver and it's like the end of the world. And, oh, gee, you know, this is terrible. When that driver, it's like a carbon copy, almost of the, the, their backup driver, which is the same driver, uh, you know, but they talk how they struggle with it. I think back to that, about what Miller did with this woman's driver, and it just makes uh, the, the equipment game, you know, that they play now, I thought. Kind yeah. of silly. Yeah. If you, if you give the, the you give the truly gifted guys two or three shots, they, they can figure it out. I mean, Jeff Ogilvy told me a story about being at Shady Oaks in in uh, Fort Worth and taking one of Hogan's old drivers out to to hit, and you know it was unbelievably stiff. This this drive. I mean, everybody hit it low right with the, with this club, and Jeff did that for two or three shots, and then but he figured it out. You know, it, after what they they, they adjust. It's amazing how good these guys are at doing that. I mean, as you say, the it kind of puts a lie to the the equipment notion that uh, you know you can't switch around. Certainly at their, their level, I mean, give them four or five shots and they can figure it out. I think. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we're talking about how talented these guys are, and uh, you know, the gods just bless them with this talent and all that. But you know, underneath that, I'm kind of going too far with talking about Phil is you know, being lazy, not being a hard worker. Uh, Tiger always liked to say that about Phil and mm-hmm. let it filter back to Phil and kind of get in his head, you know. But but the fact is, I think that they all work on, you know, they they love practicing. They mm-hmm. love getting good. It's, it's their life's work. It's their identity. And so to say it's all gift that they didn't practice like that. But with Phil, this is – Kidding. This made a huge impression on me. I saw him now. He had just barely turned pro, and now he's no longer driving the little Honda Civic, you know, ratty old car. Phil yeah. was strictly just a kid from the middle class. Now he's got like a uh, um, this BMW, and he's all excited. He's been given all this money up front. And I stayed with him. He invited me to stay in this uh, um, condo he had bought at Ganey Ranch. So I'm hanging out there with him for, for a few days, and it's a lot of fun. He's so much fun to be around. But we went out into his little garage, and he had a, had a couple of bags of clubs in there, some of the old clubs. And I started looking at these clubs. And he had those. Now, you remember with King, you know, they, had, they made the L-Wedge. That's their yeah. lofted wedge. Yeah, the L-Wedge, the famous L-Wedge. But the thing about those ping clubs, you know, those in old investment cast things, that metal on that those things was hard. It, you couldn't wear those irons out. These mm-hmm. other forged clubs, they would get worn smooth, you know, uh, eventually. Yeah. You cannot wear out an L-wedge. Now, inside this bag that they'll have, there were two L-wedges, and they were the same in, in that they were both, the faces were worn smooth, Yeah, you know? Uh, yeah, you couldn't see the groups. In fact, it was almost like a pockmark, that little dime-shaped thing there, mm-hmm. where it was almost concave, you know, where it weren't a hold on. I thought, you know, this kid's 19 years old. Well, he's, he's older than that, 21, maybe. Mm-hmm. He's just out of college, 21, 22 at the most. And he had already, at that point, he had practiced enough with these wedges to, to wear out two L wedges at least, you know, you just think how many thousands of balls did you hit with those things? And that's just the L wedges, you know, you can imagine the rest. So, 
Yeah. Maybe they work harder than we think. Well, he obviously he did work hard on shots like that. I mean, everybody, you know, Phil went up, way up in my estimation or even further up, but when he, the, the way he played the last six holes at Muirfield when he won the Open, um, at, at an event where he struggled mightily to even make the cut half the time. But uh, that kind of elevated him, you know, in the sort of pantheon of the gods, if you like, but by winning that event because he struggled so much. But the, the shot I remember is not, it was from the week before when he won the Scottish Open up at Castle Stewart in the north of Scotland and he hit this this pitch shot on the last hole. It was one of those that, you know, he was uphill and it was half blind shot and he, he fizzed it in there. You know, it was, you know, head height and going like a rocket, it seemed like. Until it landed and then checked and gripped and suddenly it was just absolutely stiff. I mean that that to me is the is the Phil Mickelson shot, if you like. I mean he's better at that than just about anybody since Seve, I think. Yeah, yeah, they, they, he has it there. What, Phil was always he struggled to 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 get his very first major, and I think it was he was kind of exposed for his game being a little too one dimensional. You know, yeah. he he, yeah. he just hit the ball in the air. That's, mm. He just did not, you thought the British Open, uh, excuse me, the Open Championship <laughs> would be the last one that he would, that he would have a shot at. Yeah. But Phil, one day, a, a light went on, I think he had some help Dave tells on this, uh, where he started when he was just off the green, Phil would invariably use a wedge and he would only play one shot. This is really true at Augusta. He would only, he would only hit it high in the air and land it by the hole. One year he just came out and you see him putting from the fringes. You started hitting these more bumps and runs using clubs other than, than an L wedge on these short game shots. And it just opened up new worlds for him, you know, really. And that's what I think that kind of is what completed him as a player, made him more dangerous at the Masters. It's yeah. how he won that Open Championship. And, uh, it's good. It was satisfying to see. It's like, geez, you're finally getting it. You know, you, you lunkhead, you, you mm-hmm. big skull thing. Why didn't you do this ten years ago? You know. So. Yeah. Well, it kind of it kind of decided the he's second behind Tiger debate for me. I mean, I, I was for a long time I was an Ernie guy because it was it was kind of like comparing apples and oranges because Ernie didn't play full time in America like Phil did, and you can't directly compare their careers. But um, I, I kind of edged towards Ernie until Phil did won that open and obviously now he's won the PGA since so he's he's kind of separated himself from Ernie a little bit in terms of majors but uh, you know as I say I was an Ernie guy until Phil showed that till he played the, those last six holes at Muirfield like I mean he never missed a shot it was it was beautiful to watch yeah but but Ernie was so good you know at that at that one moment you know well I don't say long one moment he was good for quite a time but he he did have his zenith you know around mm. well, maybe 1994 you know when, yeah yeah um, yeah I think that was peak Ernie was was right in there and I think Ernie he certainly seemed like going forward that, that he would he would be the guy I had a long-standing bet with Tom Callahan uh, uh, about that he thought Ernie would would you know, this is one of those bets that will settle 10 years in the future, 20 years. And uh, uh, he took Ernie and I took Phil. And Ernie, uh, I, I, I really thought that Ernie was going to win that. But Phil, uh, you know, Phil was never injured. I, mm. Just by just by hanging around and kind of adding these, he just dripped away at it. And where the, the sum of his career is probably a little um, a little more than earnings, but 
Yeah, yeah, I remember Ernie Els didn't play Ryder Cup, you know, and I, yeah. I think the, the President's Cup is it's not quite in that same con- uh, conversation as Ryder Cup. And Phil played a mil- million of them, but uh, more than anybody, right? I think he, he's played more than anyone, but yeah. Um, He's not a good Ryder Cup player. I think he, uh, he's lost more games in the Ryder Cup than anybody else has ever done. <laughs> there you go. An ignominious uh, record. The Tiger wasn't particularly good at it. Yeah. No, no. At it, yeah. Not with Jack Nicholas. When you look at Jack Nicholas's record, it's not that great either, given how good he is. You know, my goodness. Yeah, that's right. You know, I know there were some guys that are just absolute Ryder Cup killers. But sometimes... Uh, but guys you think would be killers in Ryder Cup are not that good. Raymond Floyd's another guy. You, yeah. you think that Raymond Floyd was this great mano a mano, mean guy and intimidator and, and all this stuff. But his Ryder Cup record is not that good. Yeah. I, you know, I'd be really good to unwind what the reason is for that. I, I don't know. They, they certainly want it. Uh, you know, Raymond Floyd loved the Ryder Cup. You know, I mean, he's a real patriotic guy and and all that, but he never seemed to play great, whereas some other guys have incredible Ryder Cup records. You know, Tom Kite has a good Ryder yeah. Cup record. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, he was Mr. Top 5 guy for a lot of his career. Yeah. You know, he, he, Tom Kite maybe won the best Ryder Cup match ever. I mean, at Walton Heath in 1981. I mean, uh, Sandy Lyle played 16 holes at Walton Heath in 7 under par and lost 3-2 and two to Tom Kite. Yeah, how about that? And, 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 and Kite also has one of the, the greatest margins of victory. You yeah, know, it's, Howard Clark at the Belfry. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't see a guy like Tom Kite doing that, you know. But he, uh, but it's uh, it's true. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting animal. Love Ryder Cup. Good, guy, good Ryder guy, Cup I want to on. I want to move you on to talking about my shots. But one last question on the Ryder Cup. Uh, what, what's your theory on why Europe keeps kicking America's ass when? On paper, America has a better team. Uh, I think I think it's a complicated thing. I think that for a long time, I think Americans were hyper-focused on it. They were deeply aroused by it. And, you know, uh, it meant a lot to them, this whole playing for your country thing. And... I think when they started getting beat, you know, it got to a point, it got to a point where they kind of like the kid, like a child, where they just said, I just don't want to play anymore. Where they, they started, yeah. they yeah, they just started saying, oh, well, Ryder Cup, it's not that important. Yeah. Uh, that's no measure anyway. It's match play. It's not, you know, oh, it's a team thing. Where they you'd see little things where they would discount it to try to diminish yeah. it in yeah. terms of importance for a true test of, of competition. No question that the pressure of losing, that there, you know, the, the pressure that came from getting beat, it made them try too hard. And they, they, there's no question that they tried too hard. Uh, the captains just tied themselves in knots trying to come up with a formula, uh, a million different formulas. It, I thought it was kind of funny. And, and by the way, I'm a pretty patriotic guy. I, I, this was hard to watch a lot of these things. But, <laughs> but, but you look at a couple of a couple Ryder Cups, uh, the one at the Country Club, for example, and I think the one at Oak Hill, the captains both 
both years, they thought, you know, the way to do this is to set up a course like a traditional U.S. Open. These yeah. have been traditional U.S. Open venues. We're going to grow the rough up. Uh, we're going to firm up and harden the grains. And this will play right into our wheelhouse because uh, at that time, you know, no European player had won this since Tony Jackman. This, this is the way to do this. And, uh, and <laughs> what's, what's funny is the, the Europeans just throttled it, you know, in, right. in that with those course setups. And I remember watching it. Uh, I'm American, so it's like I'm dismayed by this. <laughs> I think, what is wrong with you guys? And, you know, the answer to this came back. Uh, I got this from Pete Cowan. I said, why, you know, why is it like the styles of golf, uh, a European, a Great Britain style, especially. Why is that, you know, with the driver? Why do Americans, you know, produce Hogan and Nicholas? And, and why would they, why didn't more British and European golfers have more success in the US? I go, it's got to be the driving, right? Mm. They're just Americans are straighter drivers, I would think. Nicholas, Hogan, that, that style of play. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 no. You're, you're you're not correct on that. He, he said, he said that the European style of driving invariably, it's a different type of driving. You know, Americans, they traditionally, the deal with courses here, they, they hit it high and uh, they do try to hit it straight, but they hit it high. The European style is to hit it more low and bullet like. Yeah. Uh, low penetrated to, to deal with wind and weather courses and stuff like that. He said, but it doesn't mean, he goes, I don't know where you got this idea. He goes, maybe from Seve, because Seve, Seve was a good driver at one time, but a lot of his career was not a good driver. Most of it, the latter half of his career was not a straight driver at all. And he said, maybe it's just the notion of Seve and making birdie from a parking lot and and all that. It's given this impression that they are not good drivers of the golf ball. He said, that is not true. It's a different style. And I thought, geez, you know, that made the light bulb come on over my head. I thought, mm. well, you know, I started looking at tapes of those Ryder Cups. And sure enough, the European players, they drive it every bit as straight, you know, as, as uh, the American players did. And uh, every bit as good, you know, you grow the grass up around the green. So just so set up to those Ryder Cups. And it seemed like the European players dealt with it, you know, kind of the ragged, unpredictable, bad lives. Uh, they dealt with it better than the, the Americans did. So eventually the Americans just ran out of bullets. They did every kind of personality type, uh, put short hitters with short hitters, long hitters with long hitters, wild hitters with straight hitters. They just tied themselves in knots with that. And when you get keep getting beat, uh, I think it, it's it's a pervasive, almost group thing. So they started almost dreading Ryder Cup. I don't think they like to play in. Uh, mm. Really, I, I, I don't. I mean, you see, it's hard to get players to play in the Olympics, some of the top players. But I believe that they secretly do not embrace the Ryder Cup anymore. Amer American players. Yeah. A lot of them don't. It's well, that, a big, that's... crazy schedule all year. They've got President's Cup to play in every year. All of these things, and they just think, "Oh no, not this again." <laughs> I, I do. I do have a certain amount of sympathy for the Americans, in that, as you say, they they have their President's Cup. They've got something every year, whereas the Europeans, it's every two years. But you're right. I mean, the the contrast in 
I mean, the Europeans, they're gagging to get into the Ryder Cup team. Every single one of them. There is, there's not one European who doesn't want to play in the Ryder Cup really badly, you know. And their approach is so much different, I think. Uh, they find that, like, you think, gee, they must have some kind of magic bullet in there to make them the way that they pull together and seem more relaxed and they love each other and all that. Well, I think that they're Australians. I don't think that they, their secret is, is they don't try hard at any of that. It's, it's almost, I'm not saying they throw names into a hat. They have, they, they have some like unbelievably successful duos, you know, yeah. Seve and Ollie and, and that type of thing. And, uh, they did have a few of their things, but other than that, their key, the secret to me is that they're just more relaxed. Mm-hmm. And they look at this less of a life and death mission. You know, we've got to do this. They just look at it as fun and, and camaraderie. And it's about that. It's, I've heard it's a myth that they don't have the usual infighting. Um, well, there's certainly been, there's been some of that. I, I, I wouldn't pretend to say that there's been a lot of it, but there's certainly been, there's inevitably, you know, there's the odd personality clash, but they do, what they do is they do a hell of a job of concealing that. I mean, even the the disastrous Nick Faldo captaincy at uh, Valhalla in 2008, there isn't one of those players who's thrown Faldo under the bus publicly. Um, I've, I've I've heard plenty of stories off the record, but they 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 won't go on the record. I mean, as as hopeless as he was in in almost every aspect of the job, um, not one of them has come out and just slayed him. Not, I mean, Sergio has kind of hinted at it, but only after Faldo did something similar to him. You know, they clearly didn't get on that week, and uh, Faldo started to talk about it, and Sergio had a wee jab back at him. But other than that, um, nothing. And, and I mean, you you saw it as well as I did. I mean, he, he was absolutely hopeless. You know, he he got absolutely he got nothing. He got nothing right. I mean, he was terrible to the point where I think some of them, it was difficult for them to play hard for him. You know, it got to that stage. So you know, they're not without incident, the Europeans, but they they do a great job of when it does come up, um, hiding it. And generally speaking, they do get on, and they've all got the common cause. And it's you know the big bad Americans, we're the underdogs. And it's easier to be the underdogs. It just is. That's right. Much, much easier. No doubt about it. I, you know, uh, I heard a, heard a good thing. It may have been, maybe Rod Moore said this in uh, the, the, uh, the pod that he did with you, mm. where he was talking about uh, um, Nicholas and Tiger. And he felt that Rod said, and again, that's a pressure thing that we're, that we're talking about here, is he said, said he felt that it was easier to, uh, to come from behind, meaning it's easier to chase than to be chased. Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, that's right. And I, I thought, geez, isn't it just the opposite? Like, like, like you look at Nicholas, after he tied – uh, eclipsed Bobby Jones' record of 11 majors, which was the target for him, and which he accomplished in about, about 1970. Good, good golly. I mean, he, he, had, he had 11 or 12 by the time he was 30. Um, once he had that, he had kind of an open field in front of him, and I think that that was, it was harder. It was harder to become motivated. He had mm. achieved 
he, he had beaten Jones. Now, now, now what is there? And that's when Jack started building golf courses and playing less and yeah. doing all these types of things. Something tells me that if Tiger were the guy who were out there first and say the target were 15 majors mm. or 18 majors, say Tiger had won 18 professional majors. Something tells me that if Jack, the young Jack, had had that in his sights, he would have won more than 18. I, I yeah, think I, that he, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jack Nicholas was unbelievable. I, he, I mean, he was Nick Guy. He was first or second in thirty-seven majors. Yes, think, think about that. Uh, I mean, goodness me, you know. Here's a statistic for you. This is this is one of my favorite sneaky uh, golf statistics, and it does not have to do with men. It has to do with Kathy Whitworth. Um, the great Kathy Whitworth, mm. who to this day, she has the record for most, yeah. for most e- wins. Is it 88 to progression. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kathy Whitworth lost in 23 LPGA playoffs. <laughs> 23 <laughs> seconds. And she finished second 90 times. Ugh. She won 88. She finished second 90 times. And you can look it up. Yeah. I, it's... it's I thought that can't be. There, there's, there's, there shouldn't be a zero on the end of that ninety. It's, sure it's not nine second places. <laughs> ninety times she finished second. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but um, it just it's a sign of greatness. Second places that where you're contending yeah. that many times it matters. And I think Tiger, I think Tiger had like seven runner up, something something yeah. like that. But yeah. Great sign of greatness. Yeah. Anyway, as I say, I, I, I kept you on the ride a cup longer than I meant to there, but I, I, I do think that um, whenever I mention your name to, to people I meet and people I know, the first thing that they mention, or one of the first things, is certainly the, the My Shot series that you did for Golf Digest. I mean, I've done a few of those kind of things myself, and uh, you kind of set the standard for everybody else coming along behind, I think. Um, talk to me about uh, the, your favorite ones. I mean, I, I don't know sure how many you did or whether you know how many you did, but uh, my goodness, they were, they were awfully good and they were incredibly popular with the readers. Yeah. Well, it wound up where it's a round number, but I think I did like 125. Right. You know, after it got started, after it launched in, I believe, 2002, uh, the first guy I did was Sam Snead. Mm. And, after, you know, they just loved it. They loved the photograph and the form was just right. You know, I, I, I'm blessed. I, I, I found that and that I, that I made it work. It wasn't entirely an original conception. I, 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 I stole the shell of the idea from the thing I saw in Esquire magazine. You know, anything we do that's new has, has been tried before. Yes, in, that's true. Yeah. In some form, sure. And, yeah. And Esquire did this thing called What I've Learned uh, that kind of inspired it. And I thought, boy, that would really work for this, I'll bet. And it did. It did work. Yeah. And it kind of, it, uh, it really became kind of the high watermark for me. I, once I started it, I couldn't get out of doing it. They, they, not that I wanted to get out of doing it, but it was every month, you know, for years. And, and then I, I, I want, I took a break from it. It's just like that roll call for your, uh, and I think the one thing about that, my shot is it, it seems it's one of those kind of writing tricks, you know, like, uh, 
when you read somebody like Tom Callahan or Charles Price or Kindred, really good writers, they make it look so easy. Yeah. You know, it, it just seems like it was nothing. And I just, just I hate, them. So I hate those people. Like, I hate those I'm people. Sorry? I hate all those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it. It's, it's like a magic trick. And uh, the way that they do that, but I, I worked so hard on those my shots. I, I, you know, I would really drill down before I went to see somebody, and I where I just kind of knew everything about them. And and the the the, the trick was to get them talking about stuff uh, other than golf, yeah, uh, not necessarily golf, and to get them to be a little silly at times, and to make them laugh and to make them cry. And yeah. what's your favorite golf joke? Or anything that was a little bit off the beaten path. Yeah. Which golfers, they're so tired of. Uh, I just think they become like robots. They're asked the same questions. They're talking about the same things all the time. And this was kind of a breath of fresh air for them. I, for, for, at the outset, at least, I had no trouble getting subjects. And it didn't matter who it was when I would send a sample, some samples of the my shots to their agents, you know, or mention it to a player occasionally, they were all over. They, they had heard of it and it was no trouble getting the time. And I had a standard of like two hours. I want two hours, which is, which is a big ask yes. for anybody. Good luck getting that today. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was just a good, uh, a good vehicle. And over, over the years, um, uh, I, you're always asked, you know, kind of thing. Well, gee, what's your favorite one? Oh, you you, know? that, that's exactly what I was going to ask because that's what everybody wants to know. Well, it's hard. It's like impossible. It really is. I'm so frustrated because you know I hate that. I hate that answer when when you know you ask Jack. How many times has Jack been asked? Which of your favorite, which is your major championships is the most special to you? Yeah, I know. And he just kind of looks at you, and when he says, "They all are." Yeah. You know, or I would put these five, you name five. People are always, they're a little, oh, come on. There's got to be a favorite one. 86 Masters, come on. Yeah. You know, or 72 Pebble Beach. Yeah. Oh, come on, Jet. But it's really true. You know, I, I'm sorry. It's like, good Lord. It'd be like I would sit with uh, Tom Weiskopf, for example, or Doug Sanders, mm. uh, some or some evil Knievel, uh, some of these people. <laughs> At that moment, when I had them in front of me, and that's that was my favorite part of it was just talking to them and interviewing them, and and having a trust, you know, there where they didn't think I was going to burn them, and I'd say, just let it rip. Come on, let's laugh. Okay, you'll see this before it goes in, and where they would just tear off the the take the head cover, you know, they they would really go after it, and every so every time I did that, uh, they were all awesome. They were all awesome. As far as the content goes, I don't know which which one would be the best. I guess that would be up to a reader. But um, they, they kind of, there was sort of a, they just got to a threshold where they were kind of good every time. Really, to be honest, not to brag. But Who did you try and get and you, di- and you never did? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, there were a few. Uh, I tried Mickey Wright uh, forever and ever and ever and she would never do it but I finally got Mickey Wright and that was really satisfying there were some other that were athletes in other sports that I wanted to get uh, uh, I wanted to do Sandy Koufax right. uh, oh man he would have been something uh, but he he was a no um, 
as far as golfers goes, I know there's one or two, John. Uh, God, I don't come to me off the top of my head. Some people you'd think would be easy gets, and they were hard to get. Paul Lazing was impossible to get really? try to do, oh, yeah. do this. Why was that? Well, yeah, he'll talk to a chair. I mean, I know. I'll talk to anybody. But for some reason, maybe he's just messing with me. You know, maybe he's just playing hard to get. But it was a hard, <laughs> hard to, to get him uh, pinned down. Colin Montgomery, no chance. Yeah, uh, you know, I've tried uh, him as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I would say... Well, I, I know uh, why he wouldn't talk I to do? me, but you'll have to. <laughs> I don't know why he wouldn't talk to you, but I know exactly why he wouldn't talk to me. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. That's kind of famous. That's one of those cool yeah. golf rivalries. You and Colin Montgomery. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, geez, make it easy. You know that he drives around the Champions Tour, you know, takes his car. So yeah. he's got a million yeah, that's right. useless hours. Yeah. You can only see so many billboards for Shoney's, you know, on the highway before. <laughs> Or you think you might want to talk to somebody. Yeah. So, yeah, car, cars can be great venues. That's how I did it with Sam Snead. He's taken a, yeah. a long car ride with him, you know, from Florida up to the Masters. And and it helped in that case that he had a stroke in the car while he was in it with him. Yeah. And that led to, like, maybe the uh, maybe maybe the most memorable story or unusual story that, that I ever did. You know, it was uh, when Sam was the honorary starter at the Masters, and he did have that stroke. Mm-hmm. He was in the hospital. They didn't think he was going to make it, and he was really close to unconscious. And yeah, had vomited, and it was scary. It really was. And mm-hmm. uh, his son was in the car there, and you see his son just panic. Dad, Dad, talk to me. And, and oh God, was it heroin? But yeah, yeah. he got in, and two days later. You know, he came and I got access to the hotel room. You know, I was close to the Sneeds and they let me in there. Nobody else could get in there. But I was in there sitting Sam Nick at his bed and he improved. He got up and he's there in a, his gown, his hospital gown. And next thing you know, he's eating big plates of food, you know, eating with gusto. <laughs> yeah. Teasing the net, teasing the nurses and making all kinds of uh dirty old man comments out of them. And, yeah. Um, he finally got out of there and, you know, I hit that tee shot, which is like my favorite all time moment in golf. Uh, I know that's weird. It's non-competitive, yeah. but to see Sam hit that tee shot and he hit it like he was a 35 year old man, you know, it's just unbelievable because he couldn't walk 24 hours early. What, what do you think of my theory that he might be the greatest golfer of all time simply because he was great longer than anybody else has been great? Yeah, it's well, greatness, you know, it's uh, that's the big argument. You know, do you need a great body of work? You know, does how much does longevity matter? You know, it matters in baseball. I mentioned Sandy Koufax, mm. I think he's the greatest pitcher of all time, but on the other hand, he only had like a six or seven productive years, yeah. You know, and and you think, well, geez, what about a guy that, that hangs around for? 20 years or, or longer. Sam is the best on that count. You know, he, he, he was good and he was a serious freak, uh, physically things mm-hmm. he could do and to watch him play, you know, and, you know, geez, I saw him when he was old. I never saw a young Sam Snead. I saw him first in like 1984, 85. 
and he was 72 years old by then. But even then, he could do things that other people couldn't do. Uh, Lee Trevino will talk about that a lot, you know, but he he could hit drivers off the fairway. He still carried a one iron when he was 72, and he could mm. make it sing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's just like amazing. And the way, you know, his waggle way came in, it was like this guy was golf. He, he was like an extension of it. It's like he played it the way it was meant to be played. It's like golf. He loved golf, and golf loved him back. And it's sort of a guy. It's like a thing like he came out of the womb you know, uh, yeah. cut out expressly, you know, for this purpose. So you, you mentioned yeah. Trevino there. Um, I mean, you've spent a bit of time around Trevino. I never have. And I, he was my, certainly he was my favorite golfer for a long time until Seve came along, but, and he still remains number two. And I've never talked to him other than in a huddle briefly. Um, what do you make of Trevino? Everybody, you know, I think he was a genius. He, he could do things with a, with a golf ball that uh, that even Nicholas couldn't do. I mean, Nicholas was a better player, if you like, but uh, as an actual hitter of shots, Trevino was unmatched for a long time, certainly in my mind. Uh, what, what what do you take away from the time you spent around him? Well, there's a, a few sides to Lee Trevino. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. There's there's sort of the, the Mary Max side. There's the wisecracking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, joke-making, funny, kind of a almost a, a comic figure, you know, the way that he could do that. We're not too serious here. Uh, that Mary next side, there's the nasty Trevino, which he, he definitely could have that. I've seen it. It's, it's not pretty. I've seen, no. <laughs> I've seen him call out sports writers for things that they wrote that he didn't like. I've seen him yell at ladies, you know, <laughs> they're blocking his way, yeah. trying to get somewhere. I've heard him rail about Augusta National. I mean, mm. that's, uh, yeah. And, and the troubles that he had there and he's really peripatetic. His moods can change kind of on a, on short notice. And, you know, but then he's got this third side and it's, it's a beautiful side and it's a warm side. that just makes you think he's the most man in the world. He, mm. uh, kindness, you know, including a kindness that he did towards me, you know, when my daughter was ill. And there's a softness in there that he really didn't want too many people to see. Mm. You know, um, that's one thing about celebrity. They don't want to be too nice. Uh, Phil Mickelson, who's done amazing things for charity and done amazing things for individual people. And they don't want you to know about it because if they if you know about it, because if, if you do, if they let it out, uh, it's like somebody who won the Powerball. You know, they're just besieged with requests and yeah. all that. So they, yeah. they keep that under wraps. But Trevino has done a lot of stuff like that. He he lit, has lifted a lot of people up. And one thing about Lee is, you know, it's really hard to get in with Lee, you know, um, to become a friend or somebody to trust. You know, he he, he, got, he got hurt a lot by other people, things that would – you know, he couldn't get, they wouldn't let him into the PGA of America, you know, at first. It was so hard for him to get out there. He, you know, they talk about Ben Hogan having a hard life. I, I just can't imagine Trevino. It's no father. Yeah. Grandfather was a grave digger. I mean, you just, that kind of poverty is crushing. And, and you know, he had it from the time he was little. Uh, and, overcome that it's bound to and being you know hispanic mexican-american uh 
at that time, you know, back in the early 60s, it was just it was just really hard to make anything of yourself. And, uh, and people would hold you back, you know, try to be a Mexican-American, be a head pro somewhere back in 1960. Good luck. And and well, I certainly believe, I, I, I'm I, trusting. I've seen I certainly understand his, his issues with with Augusta National, certainly the, the, the Augusta National back in the day. I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that anybody from any kind of minority background w- was comfortable in that place as it was. Yeah. It, it's certainly a lot better now, but um, it, back then, I can only imagine what it was like. Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, there, there are slights, real and imagined, hmm. you know. When it comes down to, like at Augusta, it really erupted over a thing about tickets, hmm. I think. And Lee didn't feel, feel he was a top player, U.S. Open champion, and he didn't feel that he was being treated quite with the deference that some other people were. And Lee, he is really sensitive. He's a proud, proud man. And you always wonder if the crime against him was really, you know, that serious. Mm. But in Lee's mind, it was, you know, I never quite saw it. And Lee himself later said, I made too much of it. That's just that's just me. But he did. Hold a hold a grudge, and, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of him. But once you're in um, with Lee, and he considers you a friend and somebody you trust, he's just such a great guy. I mean, such a such a wonderful guy, good guy to to write with, to work with, because he'll give you profound stuff yeah. and crazy stuff. Like he'll tell you things about the golf swing you've never heard, and that is execution. Hmm. To, to watch him hit balls, you know, he's he's in that pantheon, those top five guys, you know. Yeah. But definitely. I saw Johnny Miller hit it, and Trevino had that quality, but he hit it. It just sizzled. It was the the backspin. It had this ball spinning on this axis when it came off the came off the club. That was fantastic. And could work it anyway. He could do things with his hands, his little stubby stubby little fat fingered hands, things that he could do with the club. You know, it's like God put it there. You know, it's like just just amazing. Great, great, great. Who who was the hardest work in the in the my shot genre, if you like? Who was the who did you spend have to work the hardest to get the stuff out of? Well, um uh there's no doubt some of them are better than others. They're not all great. Yeah. Uh I had I had kind of not great times uh, with a few people, and some of them kind of surprising. I didn't get along well with Chubby Champ, uh, you know. Um, you know, that's the thing. You know, these guys with nicknames, you know, Chubby, Smiley, you know. Yeah. They're the most difficult people. These people with these, these <laughs> lovely, <laughs> adorable nicknames, they're the most difficult people. <laughs> my experience from, from what I've had, but uh, what, what it is, uh, Chubby wasn't easy uh, for me. He actually, the content turned out to be okay, but I don't know what it is with that guy. I was, I was uh, just talking, making small talk, and he, he was managing Ernie, Ernie Ells, yeah. and he made mention of uh, um, Ells for Autism. You know, yeah, yeah. Ernie's foundation. Yeah. And there was something about it I didn't know. He he talked about, like, we've raised this month, or, and I, I, he had raised the money, and I go, well, 
how much have you raised? Or and he just, I don't know, for some reason he got really mad. He, he said, you know, you didn't do your homework, you didn't do your research. And I go, well, I go, well, that's why I'm here. I, I am researching. Tell me the answer. I don't <laughs> yeah. I want to know. And he just, I don't know, he just glared at me. I don't, I don't. I don't think he likes Americans in general, basically. <laughs> I think he's prejudiced. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, I've, I've always had – Chubby's been, always been great with me, but you, you, you find that with the, the, those guys are – you know, Darren Clark's another one. I mean, Darren is terrific with me, but I've seen him with other journalists and things, and he, and he just doesn't cooperate. You know, he, they either like it or you don't. I mean, it's, and there's just no explaining some of it, I think. It is. It's true. I guess it's just a personality thing. It's going to happen in life. But but I think the other thing, too, is I was asking Chubby sort of some of these off-the-wall questions, and he had no idea what I would, yeah. was working on or yeah. what I was shooting for with this thing. So I think that, that a couple of them, you know, I think they just kind of like, isn't this, a, what's that got to do with golf? You know, so know. <laughs> he's taken aback. Yeah. Another difficult guy was Daniel Burke. Really? Uh, right. Young player. Well, I don't mean he was necessarily difficult. I don't wouldn't hold the cudgels up to him, but again, he did, had no idea what I was uh, what I was trying to do with this. Yeah, and all I knew going in is young player. You know, young old guys are the best people to interview because they just have more life experiences. There's just more maturity. They have kind of better opinions about things. Better storytellers. Because it's just the fabric of their life is so much more evolved, so much more developed. And and Dan, the young guys, Daniel Berger, well, he hasn't gone through that much. And so it's harder to yeah. take a direction or to ask them about things. And Daniel Berger, uh, you know, right when I got what met with him, he told me, how's it going? He goes, ah, not too good. You know, my leg's a little sore. And I said, what happened? He goes, I got bit by a dog yesterday. <laughs> and I go, really? And he says, yeah, I don't know why these people can't keep dogs on a leash. You know, I'm just standing there. And, this dog, and I go, you know, this dog bit me. I go, well, tell me more about that. And I kind of have my pen on. I'm taking yeah. a couple of notes. Yeah. And he says, why are you, why are you asking me about this? Like, why, why do you want to know about me getting bit by a dog? What does that <laughs> have to do with golf? I go, well, that's the point. It's not about golf, but just the life of a yeah. golfer. You got bit by a dog. Tell me about it. Tell me one little nugget. And he just looked at me like I was nuts and a, and a joke. Yeah. And you could see his eyes just cloud over with disinterest and looking at his watch. And I only had an hour with him. You know, the time gets short. And then other thing, you know, I asked him about the Masters. This was unbelievable to me. He had played in his first Masters, and he had never seen the course before. He knew almost nothing about the Masters. He swore he had never watched a golf tournament on TV wow. before. He, it was. I, I thought, what do you? Where do you go from there? It, it's like. Uh, what do you do with that? And it was true. He was very sincere. He's never watched a full golf tournament on TV. He says, I've caught it out of the corner of my eye when I'm walking out of the golf club and it's on a TV up in the corner. But no, I've never watched. And I said, okay. You know, what do you think of Augusta? Yeah. You know, I go, didn't you want to see it? For? He goes, oh, I got invitations to go play there. But I thought, nah, 
I was busy and didn't <laughs> feel like doing that. And well, okay, so he plays in his first Masters. Well, what about your practice round? He goes, I didn't really play a practice round. I, I played nine holes and I walked the other nine with my putter and wedge. But for the Masters, dude, I, I, it just it was unbelievable. I just wasn't quite sure where 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 to to go yeah. from there, to go with him. He had never read a book. I had said, I asked him, uh, okay, I, I, what's your favorite movie? What movie makes you cry? Or, you know, maybe whatever. And uh, I, I think he mentioned a movie, but I go, well, how about like an old, an old movie, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz, or who knows what it could be. And he, and he said, I've never seen a movie in black and white. <laughs> I don't watch black and white movies. Like that was a genre, like yeah, black yeah. and white movies. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm just kind of like, well, where do you go with that? I mean, he, he's never seen John Wayne or, or whatever. So that was, it was difficult. Yeah. And I the, wish the, I the obvious question, that. Guy, is what the hell does he do if he doesn't do all those things? He goes out on his boat. Right. Okay. You know, and I'm not mocking that at all but that's his that was his pastime at the, at the time this is like two or three years ago that's what he liked to do was yeah. to go out on his boat and fish he had a girlfriend um but he told me a couple of things he told me about Yvonne Lendl slapping him across the face one time you know Daniel Berger's father was a yeah good tennis, uh, player. Good tennis player USTA ranked and uh Yvonne Lendl was close to their family and Yvonne Lendl as we know is real avid golfer, pretty good golfer. His yep. daughters are good golfers. Yeah. And he was up playing in a tournament in, in I think here in Connecticut. And he played a bad round in this tournament. He was coming off the course and he was a little sulky. He was sulky. And Yvonne Lendl slapped him across the face. He said, you know, <laughs> stop feeling sorry for yourself. You know, that's not what a champion does. You know, do, straighten up. You know, get your attitude right. And, you know, um, I do send these things to people for sign-off. And I yeah. will soften language here and there. You know, it's not a transcript. And, you know, they saw that. His agent saw it. And, like, we can't have the words, the phrase slapped across the face. Like, we had to soften that somehow <laughs> because it sounded like violence or child abuse or yeah. whatever, you know. But, uh understandably i guess but uh, anyway that was that was difficult i'm sorry that took so long to talk about that but. no 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 as, as i say i think uh, the the my shot stuff is is what everybody um wanted to hear from this certainly from this podcast and i was interested too i mean i don't think i've ever sat as well as we know each other i've never really sat down and talked to you about how, how it was all done because uh, i've just admired them from afar like most people doug sanders was the best single crumb or nugget of a story of a my shot nugget that was that I ever did. You know, I Doug Sanders told you that it's just unbelievable. And being with Doug Sanders was an unbelievable experience. He's a good player by the way. Yeah. I think he won 18 tournaments. <laughs> he loved to tell you that he would have won five majors if you could give him, you know, two birdies of, I can forget what they did. It's like two birdies Two pars in a bogey, I would have yeah. won. Where I can place them somewhere, I would have won five majors, something like that. Uh, 
but he was, I was with him at his home in Houston. And it was, it was like watching going into the set of like a, one of those sixties TV shows, you know, like bewitched or mm. father knows that the decor of it <laughs> was, it smelled slightly musty, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it had these florid pink curtains. And oh, God. <laughs> it was, it was crazy. It's like a really wonky, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. And it smelled slightly musty, you know, fucky. <laughs> It was like walking into the 1960s, and he had like a bar set up. It was like a 1960s bar, martini glasses yeah. hanging there. And, uh, you know, while I'm there, these girls are calling him. Doug was still chasing girls and uh, sending flowers, and flowers came to the house while we were there. Uh, it was great, but what a storyteller and what a story. I mean, it, look, look that up. You might find it online. Yeah, but it's yeah, yeah. Good stuff. And the best part of that, the, the crumb of that, was him uh, ordering his own suicide, putting a hit out on himself, have himself murdered. Yeah. Um, I just have never forgot that. He, he, he had had a neck condition called torticollis. Yeah, I remember seeing him at Augusta, that. and he couldn't turn his head and things, yeah. Couldn't turn his head and walk with his head kind of on the side. And, mm. and it's, uh, you know, the symptoms of that are awful. Excruciating pain. You, you can't move. Just no way to go through life. And that's what he said. You know, he goes to the guy and he said, well, we can do this operation. And it has, it's basically 50-50. There's a chance that I can, we can straighten this out. And your head will go back upright. You can kind of resume a normal life. But there's also the chance, and it's no better than 50-50, that it won't do anything to help you. And there will be a place in there that I won't be able to get to, and you're going to be like this. And uh, Sanders said, okay. So he found Sanders ran with the rat pack, you know. Yeah. He, uh, but those guys, and he knew a lot of mob guys, like old school mafia guys, you know, that they make documentaries and movies about. And he knew those guys. Mm. And he called the, called the local mob boss there in Houston, you know, Houston, New Orleans. That, that he got the guy on the phone and told him the outlook uh, for what he's going through. And he said, you know, if I, if this isn't successful, what would it cost for you to send a guy over here and kill him? Wow. And the guy says, well, why would you want to do that? He says, well, I've got a life insurance policy, and it won't be good if I commit suicide. Mm. But if I'm murdered, there will be a payoff <laughs> for the suicide yeah. or for the murder. There will be, yeah, and I can leave something for my kid and yeah. my ex-wife, like, who he was still fine of. And the guy was like, the way Doug described it, he said, it's just a very business-like thing. It's a transaction. And these guys drank together and all that and said, yeah, Doug, I think that can be arranged. Uh, I'll give you a minute here to figure it out. I'll call you back. Yeah. So he called him back a short time later and he said, okay, we've got it figured out. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sending over Mickey, whatever. You will be out at this honky-tonk down, honky out on the west part of town it's a big old western place enormous parking lot and he said you know we've done this before doug he, he said you know all there's a flood of people coming in at like eight o'clock nine o'clock 
And then while everybody's in there, a lull will hit the parking lot where nobody's coming in and nobody's coming out. Right. You like the high point of the evening. He said, all you do, you will go park your car in the outskirts of that parking lot. Mickey, you will hear footsteps behind you. Just get out of your car, stand, aim, face to the north. You'll hear footsteps, and then you won't hear anything else. Because <laughs> he will come out. He'll put a twenty-two right behind your ear. Yeah. And that will be that. Yeah. And Doug says, okay. And the guy says, and by the way, uh, it will cost you $15,000. You know, we don't do these for free. And uh, Doug said, okay. So he has the operation. And it turns out it's successful. He, he knows that Torticollis is, is relieved. Um, uh, it works. Doug is normal. And he calls the hitman back, calls the mob guy back. And he says, hey, you know, I, I'm not going to need that hit on me. You know, it, it, it turns out everything, it's all good. Uh, so I don't, we can erase this. Uh, and the guy said, the mob guy said, Doug, that's great. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. You know, we don't like to do these things unless we really have to. Uh, let's go have a drink. You know, I can't wait to see you. And it's just sort of that, you know, it's like watching the Sopranos. They just, they have, they're just so matter of fact about like this life and death type thing. But to hear Doug tell that was quite amazing. And I, I did have to talk him into, uh, you know, I, I had to do some persuading to before he would sign off on letting that story appear. But but it's there, and it's kind of surreal and amazing. So, guy, guy I'm I'm aware that I've kept you here for ninety five minutes. Um, I thank you for your time. I don't think we're going to beat that story. Doug Sanders is uh, he's the number one as far as I'm concerned. That's that's amazing. Uh, amazing tip. Ah. <clears throat> and uh, thank you for your time. And uh, the next time. We're in the same place at the same time. I promise I, I will buy you a, as you always put it, a refreshing beverage of your choice. Yes, a light shandy, please, John. Yeah, um, a shandy would, would yeah. be nice. But uh, it's always, you know, ninety-five minutes is short for you and I. And uh, I know it's good. Good being with you, pal. Uh, anyway. I wish I saw more of you. And, uh, and uh, we'll we'll wear it out somewhere the next time we see. I hope so. I hope so. Thanks for your time. Cheers. One can only imagine how much fun an extended Friday afternoon lunch with Guy Yoakum might be. As Huggy said at the outset, what a terrific storyteller. And even after that lengthy interview, you can't help but feel that there was plenty left in the tank. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Huggan and Guy Yoakum as much as I did. Well, that's it for episode 53, but don't fret because we will be back to do it all again in just a couple of weeks here on The Thing About Golf.